At Calvary 316, we make a lot to do when it comes to the topic of your ministry. As Christians, we have all been called to a ministry. We've all been called to be missionaries. We've all been called to leave this building going into whatever world we happen to reside in with the gospel. Not just demonstrating these things or being a witness by what we say, knowing that words can be cheap, talk can be empty, not just by what we do, though that's very important, but that we are witnesses by simply who we are, that we shine like Stephen, the radiance of God, the presence of Jesus, that by our very person, by the way we handle ourselves, by the way that we behave, the words that we say, just our overarching personality, our character, that when people encounter us, they notice that there's something different. Most churches view that the pastors are supposed to do the ministry and that you come on Sunday to kind of cheer them up, to support them, to hear what they might have to say, but that it's your church that does ministry, but the church is nothing more than you. You see, at Calvary 316, we believe that this is our service to you, that you come this morning as the church to be equipped, to be challenged, to be exhorted, to be lifted up in weakness, so that then you can leave and enter the battle. I don't know if you understand, but there is a real heaven and a real earth, and what's at stake and our time today is very important. It's not trivial, it's not trite, it's not even playing religion. It's reality that there is a battle for the hearts and minds of men. That there is a war, as Paul says. And thus, because we are to engage in the battle, knowing that our enemy is much more powerful than we are, and it's the truth, Man was created a little lower than the angels. You're no match for Satan. He will crush you. And yet, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And thus, in order for us to be successful in this battle, the battle we've all been called to, the battle you're in, whether you like it or not, Paul exhorts us to gear up, to arm up, to equip ourselves with spiritual armor. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 6, we're just going to read a couple verses to establish the context for what is important this morning, the topic at hand, something that I even think is very relevant to our, our series in Acts, especially where we are with, with Stephen. Verse 12 of Ephesians 6, we're told, for we do not wrestle, Paul speaking, against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Pretty ominous, isn't it? But therefore, with this in mind, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. So stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. See, knowing that the battle, our battle, 
rests not in the physical, but the spiritual realm. The Apostle Paul encourages us to first and foremost, gird your waist with truth. And then in the rest of this passage, he exhorts us to also put on various other forms of our spiritual armor. And yet, by listing this first, it would seem that this particular act, girding your waist with truth, is essential for every Christian before we even think about entering the spiritual battle. Now this phrase, to gird your waist, is interesting for it has two relevant meanings. On one aspect, Paul is telling us literally to surround or to bound ourselves with truth. Kind of like the discount double check, you know. We're surrounding our, our gut, our waist with truth. See, when it came to ancient armor and, well, ancient attire, the belt itself was important. But it was important not for what it protected. Like, no belt could stay off the sharp edge of a sword. A belt was important for what it allowed. You see, a warrior's belt served to keep the rest of his garments secured. It enabled him to engage in the battle. A belt allowed for mobility for speed, agility. I mean, imagine how effective you'd be in an MMA-style hand-to-hand combat with sagging trousers. You're holding up your pants with one hand. You're going to get yourself beat down because you've, you've made yourself defenseless. If your britches are sagging, even I could probably take you out. Just drop your drawers, and then I'm going at you. You see, the belt, it enabled activity, mobility, agility. And because these benefits were not exactly necessary during times, you know, around the camp, inactivity, and in these moments, a warrior could loosen up his belt for ease and comfort, sitting by the fire, eating some chow. And yet, when Paul tells us to gird your waist with truth, he's saying that inactivity has come to an end. Peace is no longer there. When Paul tells us to gird with truth, he's saying that the time for action, the time for the battle, is at hand. And while the image is undoubtedly true, it's kind of where we get the belt of truth, this phrase, to gird your waist, can also imply that Paul is telling us to gird or to prepare, to get ready literally to gear up with truth. Do you realize that you actually have two brains? One is found in your head between your ears. The other is located in your digestive tract. We refer to this as our our gut. For example, have you ever had butterflies in your stomach or had a strong gut feeling about something? You know those situations where your brain is telling you everything is okay? and yet there's some unexplainable force telling you that it's not. You see, when this happens, it's your second brain at work, this brain in your gut. Known as the enteric nervous system, or ENS, we find a rich and complicated network of neurons and neurochemicals, things like serotonin and dopamine, housed between the muscular layers of the esophagus, the stomach, the small and large intestines, and these neurochemicals operate identically to the way your brain does. Kind of weird to think 
But the ENS contains this brain in the gut, over a hundred million neurons, which is more than the number of nerve cells that you have in your spinal cord. Incredibly, there's even a greater flow of neural traffic from the ENS to the brain than there is from the brain to the ENS. Your stomach talks to your brain way more than your brain talks to your stomach. That's why most of us are fat. Your brain is like, you shouldn't eat that. And you're like, the other brain is like, oh, I'm going to eat that. And they get into a debate. You shouldn't eat that. You're going to die from that. And you're like, every man, it's appointed to die once. So we're going for it. Because the ENS is lined with specialized cells that produce and receive endorphins, the gut also contributes to an array of sensations, things like joy and satisfaction, pain relief. It's the reason that after a good meal, you feel great. It's also why, especially for us men, if you haven't eaten, you can be a bear. Like you can be irritable, you can be a monster, and it's like, you need a Snickers bar, right? You need to satisfy this other brain activity. You see, the gut, because this is the case, is the perfect barometer of our emotional states and stresses. For example, when we say we can't stomach a situation, or something makes us want to gag, or we have a knot in our stomach, you're actually expressing the real-life psychological sensations that arise not from your brain, but from your brain. In the East, the gut is viewed as the seat of emotions, seat of human emotions, in Japan, it's actually the midsection, not the head, that is considered the seat of wisdom and the physical and spiritual center of gravity. It's probably why they lost World War II. When Americans say, I know, what will we do? We'll, we'll do this, right? I know. I know what you're saying. But when ja the Japanese say, I know, they do this. I know. It's kind of weird. It's totally different. They'll point to their bellies. Isn't it ironic that even for us, when we see someone do something valiant, valiant, act in bravery and courage, really go out there and do something amazing, we look back even in admiration, and what do we say about that person? Man, their mental cognitive faculties in their brain are something to be admired. No, we just simply say, dude, that guy has guts. He's got guts. And this adds a new wrinkle to what I think Paul is telling us when he says that we're to gird your waist. You see, in the battle, in warfare, combat, you don't have time to act solely upon your cognitive abilities. Like, you don't have the luxury to sit back in the midst of the battle and try to think things through. If you do, you're dead. See, much of the battle is instincts. It's reactions. A warrior, one that is intent on staying alive, cannot second guess himself. He can't get mired down in fear. A warrior, a warrior must have nerves of steel. He must have confidence. When Paul tells us to gird your waist, it's as though he's not only telling us that the battle's at hand, whether you like it or not, 
you should gird up. But in essence, he's telling us it's time for a gut check. You see, before you put on the rest of the armor, before you go into the battlefield to engage the enemy, we need to first check our emotions. We should steady our resolve. And how do we do this? How do we gird our waist to go into the fight? Well, we literally, we prepare ourselves with truth. Please understand, girding your waist with truth is more important for the spiritual battle today than maybe any other time in human history. Let me give you an example. It's undeniable that in just 10 years, America has experienced a radical transformation. I don't even think the church gets it yet. I don't even think we've wrapped our, our brains around the fact that we can't do business like we've used to. Things have changed. America has changed. Cultural trends have reversed. Things that have always been viewed as social norms are being challenged like never before, not just in American history, but in the history of the world. I'll give you three easy examples. Society, American society, is redefining marriage. In the 80s and 90s, homosexuality was seen as taboo. But today, the lifestyle, it's moved from the shadows into mainstream America. Beyond the impact of shows like Modern Family, Scandal, they don't just seek to normalize homosexual activity, but equate it to normal family structure. This reality was none truer than this year's Grammy performance of Macklemore's hit song, Same Love. And while homosexuality has existed forever, marriage has been viewed by virtually every culture and every time by every religion as a covenant between at least a man and a woman. But this last decade, I don't know if you've noticed, this has radically changed. In 2004, 55% of Americans opposed gay marriage. But today, 54% support it. In 10 years, that's a 10-point swing. Of those aged 18 to 29, 75% support gay marriage, with a majority of those 65 and older, the only ones still in opposition. It's amazing, but even in this 18 to 29 age bracket, 45% of young Christian evangelicals support this redefining of marriage. Things are changing. Let me give you another example. Society is seeking to redefine gender. While gender distinctions have always been determined based on biological factors, your X and Y chromosomes, and any like contrary view just seen as being perverted. Today's transgender movement in America is front and center seeking to redefine what it means to be male or female. In addition to a barrage of transgender characters and TV shows that are on the horizon, the cover story of this month's edition of Time Magazine features a transgender character on the Netflix hit show, Orange is the New Black. And Time Magazine declares this, a year after the Supreme Court legalized gay marriage, 
Another social movement is poised to challenge deeply held cultural beliefs. Time claims the transgender transformation will be the next great civil rights battlefield in America. What it means to be married is under assault. What it means to be male or female is under assault. Thirdly, society is embracing the pot culture. According to Gallup, 35 years ago, only 12% of the population supported the legalization of Mary Jane. Today, that number has risen to 58%. I'll repeat that. 35 years ago, 12%. Today, 58%. No surprise that Colorado became the first state to legalize recreational use of marijuana. You see, what was seen as the activity of losers and dropouts like James Franco, smoking weed today, the reality is it's lost most of this negative social connotation. A few weeks ago, during a concert in London, Miley Cyrus, this is what she told her audience. We've included actually the link to the video of it on C316.tv, watch it later. But this is what she said. She says, quit smoking cigarettes because they make you look old and no one wants to make out with you. Okay, I could kind of go with that logic maybe. But then this is what she added. She said, smoke weed instead because it's never killed anyone, will keep you looking young and get you laid. You get all that from pot? I have not found one study to back up any of that claim. Understand, you guys see it, you know it, but these cultural trends, they exist, but they're happening for one basic reason. Because God has been removed from society, so has our basis for truth. And this has been a long time coming. This didn't happen overnight. We are actually at the precipice of something that started long, long ago. You can actually see the progression of this by looking at art. You know, it's been said that art doesn't influence culture, but art simply lets you know what's happening in culture, that it's a barometer to let you know so that you can see. It's interesting. You look at art, and you can see what's happening within culture. You see, from the beginning of humanity... There has always been this belief that there was a God, a deity, or gods, who presided over the affairs of man. I mean, from the beginning, there was always this worldview that there was God over man. From ancient Egypt to classical Greek, art therefore focused on the many depictions of these various gods. During the Renaissance, however, with the dawn of humanism, something begins to happen. Man begins to challenge this hierarchy. Man begins to surpass God as the measure of all things. God is here and man is here, but then during the Renaissance, man and God begin to find themselves on an equal playing field. Man becomes equal with God. And while depictions of art still included God, there was a clear inclusion of humanity. 
It's not that big anyway, but still, just for modesty's sake, we felt like we should do that. Now, during the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution that followed, philosophers consciously began to exalt man's reason above God's revelation. I mean, with the incredible scientific advancements that were taking place during this period, man came to believe that he, rather than God, had the answers for this broken planet. You had God and man, and then man equal with God. But during the Enlightenment, man usurped the authority of God. Man was now over God. Art no longer focused on God, but glorified man. Then came Darwin and what we would call modernism. With the theory of evolution, now God became unnecessary entirely, even as the explanation for our origins. Whereas man was over God, now man no longer needed God at all. Rationality became the final arbitrator of truth. Human intellect sought to improve the world. Any idea that couldn't be tested by the scientific method was labeled as relative. And while it takes time for these kind of trends to fully work themselves out, to fully develop, to fully mature, following now two or three generations that have been indoctrinated in our schools with the theory of evolution, not to mention 60 years of nothing but global conflict, modernism subtly gave way to what we would call postmodernism. Now, why modernism remove God, they still held to an objective and analytical view of the world, believing that truth could be found apart from God. But today's postmodern movement has taken godlessness to its logical end. You see, this society taught that we don't need God, God doesn't exist, we don't even need him for our origins, believes that if there's no God, then there's no basis, no meaning, no, no, no point to a universal truth. The implications are our existence is abstract. It's subjective. Man is now over man. You only over you. In 2003, 66% of Americans held to an absolute certainty that there was a God. Today, that number has decreased 10 years, 12 points. Only 54% of Americans held to an absolute certainty that God exists. Is there any surprise that this godless mindset, man over man, has produced the most self-consumed generation in human history? You know, we've showed pieces of art to reflect this progression. I think a hundred years from now, when we look back at postmodernism, the ultimate art form will be the selfie. Do you know how many pictures you take of you? It's unbelievable. Like estimates say that, that on average, someone takes up to 2,000 pictures of themselves. 
Like, that's nuts. Like, we're consumed with me. I, I, I don't, God doesn't matter. I matter. Me, myself, and I. You see, because America has removed God as the basis for truth, and all matters of morality have become relative, we now live in a society where all points of view are seen as being equally valid. And all truth, well, it just depends on the perspective of the individual. It's the result of removing God. Though this guy lived during modernism, Frederick Nietzsche, he recognized the silliness of still pursuing truth if there was no God. Frederick Nietzsche said this, he says, you have your way, I have my way. As for the right way, it does not exist. Let me give you a more modern example of this postmodern mindset. We've all sang along with Pharrell Williams' hit song, Happy. But have you ever taken a moment to consider the words? Why don't, why don't we play? Because I'm happy. Come along if you feel like a room without a roof. Now, here's the irony of this song. You only knew the, because I'm happy. We all did this, because I'm happy. Because I'm happy. Like, it's true, isn't it? Like, no one really paid attention to anything other than, because I'm happy. Like, I can remember that. That's great. Let me read you the words. I'm not going to repeat, because I'm happy, over and over and over again, because that's just... It gets stuck in your head is what happens. But he says, because I'm happy, clap along if you feel like a room without a roof. Clap along if you feel like happiness is the truth. Clap along if you know what happiness is to you. Clap along if you feel like that's what you want to do. And don't think postmodernism hasn't affected the church. For many of you, when you were in youth group, my parents' generation, the question during a Bible study was asked like this, what does this verse say to you? You see, the truth of scripture was considered absolute. It was only the application of that truth that was left to an individual's perspective. This is what God has to say. Now, what does that mean? Like, how does that apply to you? But today, and as a youth pastor for a decade, I saw this progression. Instead of asking, what does this verse say to you? Instead, we ask, what does this verse mean to you? You see, today, the definition of truth and its application are left to an individual's perspective. In many ways, personal interpretation of Scripture has usurped its literal meaning. Here's the reality of relativism. If there's no God, if evolution is true, if God does not exist, and man is the final authority over man, then modernism is stupid. Our parents and grandparents believed that you could have truth apart from God. They were foolish, and there is no basis for any of us to place our own moral standards 
upon anyone else. Let me play you the anthem of postmodernism, the brilliant Miley Cyrus and We Can't Stop. Play it, guys. It's our house, we can love who we want to. It's our song, we can sing if we want to. It's my mouth, I can say what I want to. Let me read you the words. <laughs> and we can't stop. And we won't stop. We run things, things don't run we, which is just grammatically so incorrect. <laughs> She was smoking weed, writing that. <laughs> Don't take nothing from nobody. It's our party, we can do what we want. It's our party, we can say what we want. It's our party, we can love who we want. We can kiss who we want. We can sing what we want. It's our party, we can do what we want to. You know, adding the two for emphasis. It's our house, we can love who we want to. It's our song, we can sing if we want to. It's my mouth, I can say what I want to. This is what your kids are singing. You see, when it comes to the topic of truth, you would be wise to consider two questions. First, does God exist? I mean, if he doesn't, this is all meaningless. But if he does, the second question you should think, think about is, does God have the authority to tell you what to do? Let me explain why God does have the authority to tell you what to do. In Mark chapter 12, verses 14 through 17, and you don't have to turn there. We'll put the, the text on the screen. But Jesus was challenged with a similar question. The religious leaders come to him. They, they said to him, teacher, we know that you are true, care about no one. For you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it and he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? Well, they said to him, Caesar's. So Jesus answered and said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. Now Jesus responds by asking them to observe whose image was on the coin that they had handed him. Then after answering that the coin had Caesar's image on it, Jesus just says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, we're not going to get into the taxes implications of it, other than you should pay taxes. But the word render, the word render literally means to give back in accordance to the wishes of the one who gave out. See, this is Jesus' approach. First and foremost, identify the object's giver by looking for the giver's image. Then, 
give back to the giver in accordance to the wishes of the giver. This is what Jesus is saying. If it's only reasonable that we give back to Caesar what has his image stamped upon it in accordance to his wishes, then we should give back to God what has his image stamped upon it in accordance to his wishes. So the logical question, what has God's image stamped upon it? Well, the answer is found in Genesis 1 verse 27. So God created man in his own image. And the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. <laughs> Whose image has God, you know, who, God's image, what has it been stamped on? It's been stamped on you. It's been stamped on me. Since you've been created in the likeness of God, and his image is undoubtedly stamped upon you, guess what? You can't do what you want to. God has the authority to tell you how you should live your life. You see, contrary to what Miley believes, if God created you, you better stop doing what you want to, for you don't run things. It's not your party. The house doesn't belong to you. This means that you should determine what song God wants you to sing, what words God wants you to say, who God wants you to love, and who God wants you to kiss. In addition to God, breath mints help with the kissing part. Sure, you can do what you want to, but one day you'll stand before God and you'll give an account for the life that he gave you to live. You should ask yourself, there's a God, does he have the authority to tell me what to do? Yes. And if he has that authority because I've been created in his image and in his likeness, will you render to God the very life that he's given to you, the very life he stamped his image upon? You see, this is why the act of girding ourselves with truth is so essential. For when you tighten this belt, you are acknowledging that there is a God who by definition is true and thus has established what is true for you. How? Through his word. That God determines what's right and he determines what's wrong and your little weenie perspective on it doesn't matter at all. Since Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, what is morally permissible for you, if you're his follower, is no longer a matter of your perspective, but is instead a matter of what he has to say about such things. Please understand, if you're not willing to surrender your life to his, to obey his commands, to walk in the truth, then friend, don't gear up with any of the rest of the spiritual armor because you can't enter the fight. In conclusion, I want to give you another warning. Before you gird your waist with truth, you should ask yourself, do you really want to be in the battle in the first place? Like, like understand what, what, what putting this belt of truth on implies. When we gird our waist with truth and we enter the fray, when we go onto the battlefield, we're declaring war with an enemy, a real enemy. 
You see, truth is the battle cry of light when it seeks to invade the darkness. You're telling the world, I'm here for a fight on truth. I'm gonna stand for truth. Though our society was founded on the freedom of speech, the freedom of religion, it's pretty obvious that there's a growing tide of opposition to the freedom of religious speech, isn't there? It's a fact that since we live in a culture growing intolerant of the truth, we live in a culture growing increasingly intolerant for those who gird up with truth or Christians who stand for truth. The core problem with our society is that tolerance is no longer seen as simply providing a person the freedom to, to, to do what they want, but instead tolerance is viewed as the acceptance of every position as being equal. And it even goes one step further. Ravi Zacharias, he said this, he said, these days, it's not just that the line between right and wrong has been made unclear. Today, Christians are being asked by our culture to erase the lines, move the fences. And if that were not enough, we are being asked to join in the celebration cry by those who have thrown off the restraints of religion, those restraints that a religion has imposed on them. He says that it's not just that they ask that we accept behavior, but now they demand that we celebrate it. You know, if you take a stand for traditional marriage, how will the world treat you? The world will call you hateful. They will say you're a bigot. They will say you're not even being Christ-like, not even knowing who Christ is. If you just take a stand for traditional marriage, if you take a stand for how God said it should be, then you will be hated and ostracized. You will be viewed as being polarizing, not having a place in the public square. We see this happening, don't we? Since truth is the one position that refuses to accept all other positions as being equal, for God overrides human perspective. Friend, if you gird your waist with truth, expect a fight. Expect the, the enemy to attack you and to use tricks by branding you as offensive, as intolerant, even hateful. You see, if truth is indeed the battle cry of light when it invades the darkness, this is the other thing you should keep in mind if you gird up with truth. Truth demands a counterattack. There's an enemy who, guess what, when you go running into the battlefield, isn't running the other direction. That enemy is running right back at you. It's not gear up with all of this spiritual armor so that we can intimidate the enemy into running scared. No, we need this thing, these things. Why? Because we're in for a battle. There's a war. You're going to engage the enemy. Now, have you ever wondered why it seems in our culture, at least, that Christians appear to be the only ones targeted? That Christians appear to be the ones, uh, uh, you know, in the bullseye? Well, there's an easy explanation for this. You see, a human resisting God, they'll always be tolerant of the lie, but they will always reject and oppose the truth. Opposition is unavoidable. You know, when a person is offended by truth, it is often a clear indicator that that person is resisting some internal effect that they didn't like. When someone says, you're 
you offend me. It's often an indicator that you offend them because whatever it is you're saying is rattling around deep within the soul of their own conscience. People are only offended by things that strike a chord. I'll give you an example. I used to think fat jokes were hilarious because I was skinny. Like, go up to a guy and be like, hey, so congratulations that you and your wife are pregnant. How far along are you? And I'd find that funny until now I'm two months along. <laughs> and like immediately, fat jokes are not funny. Hey, you look like you're two months along. How dare you? That's so mean. You know words hurt. That's not even a joke. Like, isn't it true that short people or Let's reverse it. Tall people have no problems with short jokes. We all think it's funny to make fun of the kids who ride the short bus, but if you were riding the short bus, you would not find those jokes very funny. You see, when we are offended, it's often a reality that it resonates with something deep within ourselves, something that's true. I have discovered that how people respond to truth directly determines how they respond to the person speaking truth. We've seen this. We've seen this with Jesus, and we're about to see this with Stephen, aren't we? If a person accepts truth, what will they do? They will accept the truth speaker. But if a person rejects truth, you should go ahead and prepare yourself to be rejected if you gird yourself with truth. Before you wear this belt, please count the cost. For every person who has girded their waist with truth and has gone into the battle, it has cost them something dearly. Just study church history. Standing for the truth does not mean life gets better. It means we go into a battle. It means that we'll take wounds. You look at the men of scripture, men who stood for truth in a very pagan culture, they would die in the battle. They would lay down their lives for truth and understand that that's okay for in the end, truth wins. One wave after another wave after another wave of Christians wearing the belt of truth will take on culture. And though some of us might be cut down, at some point, Jesus comes riding a white stallion, swinging a sword, a double-edged sword of truth. Jesus warned us, didn't he? In John 15, verse 20, remember the words that I say to you, that a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And Paul Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ will have pastures of lilies. No, will suffer persecution. You know, when you take a stand against immoral behavior on the basis of what's true, the truth of the Bible, people will accuse you of being intolerant. People will say that you're judgmental 
I hope they never say that you're not loving because that's demonstrated in a different way. But when people accuse you of these things, understand, their issue isn't with you. Their issue is the truth. Their issue isn't with you, but really, their issue is with God. And here's the interesting irony. Though God is incredibly loving, (laughs) God is incredibly intolerant, isn't he? God is not tolerant of sinful, human, rebellious behavior. Not in you, not in the world. He's intolerant of such things. Why? Because he has a better way. He has a more glorious path. There will come a day when Jesus will judge human beings on the basis of what? Whether or not they've accepted the truth. I think this is relevant for us this morning, not just for what we'll see happening to Stephen next Sunday, but for you. You attend a church that encourages you not to be idle, but to engage. Not to be a Sunday Christian, but to be a spiritual warrior engaging culture. You go to a church that will not idly sit by and allow you to just be a Sunday Christian, for there's no room for that. We want to encourage you to go out and to engage, to be a missionary. But you have to gird with truth. You have to recognize it will cost you something. But look at the alternative. Do you want to be known as a coward or as courageous? Do you want to be known for someone that stands on conviction and truth or someone that's wishy-washy and embraces a lie? The disadvantage that you have to the rest of the world is that I think you've been exposed to the truth. There's that scene in well, I would consider it the only Matrix movie. The other two were garbage, but that first one, that young man standing before, sitting before Mr. Anderson, right? And he knows what reality is, that this is not reality. And yet what makes him so repulsive is that even knowing it, he said what? Ignorance is bliss. It can be. But one day it won't be. Because we will all find ourselves faced with reality. The truth. And so, Father, we ask.